Hi, this is Dane, John Baptiste, a comedian ordinaire. I didn't say extraordinaire because I thought that'd be rather arrogant. Um, but please do listen to the podcast. Continue listening to the podcasts and supporting live comedy as much as you can. You can find me gigging around the country uh, as well as gigging outside the country as well. Passport permitting. Um, you can also find me on Twitter uh, as at DaneBapTweets. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, which is DaneSnapTeast. Um, you can also find my website, which is www.danebaptiste.co.uk and also um, join my Facebook fan page for more information about gigs if you enjoy my comedy and comedy clips. Thank you very much. So, Dane, how did you get into comedy? I used to go to a comedy club on Binney Street, which is Cork's Wine Bar on a Sunday. Um, Meeting Kojo used to run a uh, comedy show. And about, I think it's in 2006. So that was quite a while ago. I went, I used to go there a few times. And my friends always knew that I had an interest in comedy, um, which I'd had for years. And I see other acts perform. And one of my friends had spoken to the promoter, spoke to Kojo, and said that I was interested in doing comedy. So he said, okay, you've got two weeks, you'll have five minutes, and you can do five minutes here. So I had about two weeks and um, spent one week trying to write funny stuff, and it just fails. And then I just started writing just... I guess there's a frustration of not being able to find anything funny to say. And then I think a conversation I had with a friend, I started writing off of that. And um, yeah, I performed. The first show I ever did was October 26, 2006. And it went very well. But I had no idea about timing and stuff like that. So it was basically me just going on a rant about relationships. And I think I was trying to liken them to well, um, a man's idea about relationships and a, a woman's idea about relationships. It wasn't that misogynistic because, you know, no one seemed to mind, but it went it went pretty well. Um, and that was my first gig. And I did another one in December with uh, Eddie Caddy. Um, and that went pretty well as well. And then I had a really bad show at Bruno University like the following year. And then I just basically left comedy alone for like, for about three years. Because I was still working when I was doing it. And then, yeah, was, uh, and I just had no idea what I was doing. So that was my first gig. And, um, then after that, I um I was still working for Auto Trader in about 2008, and then I left there and I did a comedy course in Camden, which at the end of it, well I started off doing an improv course first, and um they were like, well if you're really serious about comedy, then you should be doing a stand-up course, which I guess was their way of saying we could use some more of your money, but you get like a discount, so I was like, okay, and the guy was like, well how many gigs have you done over the last couple of years? So I was like, no I've done stand-up, I've got some experience. So I was like, he's like, how many gigs have you done? I'm like, uh, hmm seven he's like you've done seven gigs in three years you consider yourself a stand-up and it was his disgust that really pushed me as keith palmer he runs a comedy school he's a nice guy but he's, he was his disgust at my my let's say fair approach to my stand-up career that made me like put the money up and i ended up doing that course and um yeah it was a six-week course um which basically went through comedy theory and just well for me it was mo motivate me to do more writing and at the end of that course i did a showcase and then since then i've just been gigging ever since so but the first show I ever did was 2006, October. And which course did you do? I did the Camden Comedy School, which is a six-week course that's run by uh, Keith Palmer. Uh, I think Luke Sorber's there as well. Mr. C's is another one of the tutors there as well. And um, some of the people who have done the course with me, like um, Jamie Howard has done the course, Sarah Callahan did the course. Um, Josephine Lacey did the course. Um, comedian Axel did the course. So I mean, these are people I've seen on the circuit since then. I found that they've done the course. So 
Um, John Pendle is another person who did the course as well. So, um, and um, Daphne Barron did the course as well. So loads of people <laughs> that, um, Gary Tro, yeah. So there's quite a big, like nice alumni. And um, yeah, it was in, it's next door to the dance school like near, um, I think it's Regent's Park. And um, yeah, we just went there a few weeks. And um, at first it was just like, write about stuff you like, write about stuff you hate. Um, and then about the third week came, we got into like the comedy theory and stuff and um, got pretty intense. And yeah, some people stopped coming because for a lot of people that were on the course, they were like, the first day of the course, they're like, okay, it's about 14 of you here. Of the 14 of you that are here, probably about 11 of you will finish the course and probably about two of you will go on to actually do any stand up. And they were pretty close. So I think some people still do comedy, some people are involved in the writing side, and some people still are focusing on writing. But I think. So far as regularly gigging that I can think of is myself and Daphna from my course that are still gigging. So yeah, so at the end of that, I just basically um, did the showcase, which went pretty well. That got a DVD for that, which I think is been uploaded online. But um, yeah, that was the course. It was good. Um, sometimes when you tell people you did a course in comedy, they they kind of like, so they teach to be funny. It's like no, you don't really teach to be funny. But it's more of a question of like, for for me, because I was not doing gigs that often it was kind of making sure I learned how to do stuff like how to hold a microphone how to project my voice how to not stand by the speakers and get feedback because I'll do that but I was like oh there's nothing I can do I just have to go with it and like just having that confidence stage presence and stand in the right place and knowing your time and stuff just so you can work a room a lot better so you don't have to rely solely on winging it through your material because you can have good material but if no one hears it or you stand in the wrong place if you go over time so yeah, just wanted to deal with the room and having that confidence. So it, it did help a lot in that respect in terms of structuring my and my performance and not having to just go on natural talent alone. So, yes, yeah, it was good. Would you say that the course was instrumental in getting you back on track with your stand-up? Yeah, I think it was for me because I, I knew as far as um, I hadn't performed for a long time, so my confidence had dwindled and I didn't really know how. To, and also, when I first started doing comedy, I was all the gigs I would get was uh, by referral. Like, someone like, I saw you do this gig, so why don't you come and do this gig? And I actually had no idea that you have to actually go and get your own gigs. So once I learned about that, um, that was pretty helpful because they gave us a few list of, list of gigs to go through. And um, yeah, I had no idea about having to like drive to Colchester for like ten pounds, if that, which I don't, which I'm obviously used to doing now. But yeah, having to like a large part initially with the comedy is just chasing down your own business and trying to contact promoters, and then even then. You can give a list of even like I remember up the creek when I first tried to get a gig on a Thursday up the creek because so I had started off doing a lot of gigs on like the urban circuit and I remember I was like hi I don't know if you know me but I've done gigs with Kojo and Richard Blackwood and this guy and that guy and they were like well that's nice you can come here like everybody else I was like oh, okay so it, took, it took me like a few months after I actually sent an email to up the creek to actually get down there so this example so I had to do so yeah there's a lot of work involved other than just going on stage which I learned from doing the course and um it was good because it encouraged me because I knew I, I had technically I had the performance every week I knew I had to go and write for it so because I because obviously and especially on a comedy course where everyone in the room wants to be a comedian so there's more pressure for you to perform well so it was good in that respect so then you were saying how you would drive to Colchester for a gig and now you gig all over the UK how do you find that different audiences compare and react to your material? Um, most of it's been been quite good, actually. Um, I'd say the content of my material usually stays the same. If anything, I might have to change the pitch or 
there might be certain parts of the premise in terms of I can adapt certain slang you can use as long as the punchline stays the same. So the topic and the punchline will stay the same. And it's more of a question of maybe how, how to deliver it. But I guess one of the tactics I'd use is I'll try and get to a gig pretty early just to kind of survey the area, see what kind of people are dealing with. Because there may be like potential callbacks you'll get from like the compare interacting with people. Um, so certain conversations might spark some material I have. So I may be able to change the order of my set based on something that the compare said. And then it's usually a good leading. And like a large part of when you're performing a set with comedy is that... Um, it's gaining trust of the audience that a you know what you're doing and b they they know who you are. So it doesn't matter what kind of subject you tackle; it can't be might be quite taboo as long as they trust you and they can they get an idea of who you are first. Then you can take you can kind of take it what direction you want. So um, generally, the response is good. I had a bad one in a Portsmouth about three or four months ago, but yeah, they were just pretty racist. So it was okay. Not the whole audience. There was like one particular table at the front. It was a stag do. And to be fair, yeah, yeah, people like that, it's 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 totally fine. Like the world that they have, I don't want a part of it. And I guess they felt I was intruding in their world. And to be fair, even if I was paid thousands to perform for people like that, I'd be like, oh, no one's doing anyone any favors. Like this stag do had the, 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 the groom or the stag if you want to call him that he had like a shirt which was basically like a market shirt with like japanese animation shirts and it had like a velcro like if your shirt is done up by velcro then i don't think you're responsible enough to be getting married anyway but they went ahead also like he i think he, like his father-in-law was there but his father-in-law was really old now if me personally if and when i get married my father-in-law is not coming on my stag do okay because that is supposed to be the last night of freedom. That's the that is the strength that they sell stag dudes on. Him being there is just house arrest. Okay, that's all that is. So there's no need for him to be there. It's like now we're like family. We're not like family. Okay, we both know if it was up to you, your daughter would never get married. So now you've you've just basically ruined my stag do. So any man who goes on a stag do with their father-in-law understand that your father-in-law is very selfish, and just pray that your potential wife has not inherited that selfishness because that is just someone who's being a blocker. And I highlighted that point to him <laughs> and maybe the truth hurts because this father-in-law was very drunk by then. And then there was like two of his, and he only had two friends on a stag do. And he was in his twenties. There were only two friends, a father-in-law and those two friends were identical twins. I swear on my life. That is how sad that stag do is. And they just had an attitude with me. And I was like, well, I would still rather be on this stage dying than be on your stag do. Seriously. That gig went terribly. Sarah went terribly. But I know that when I leave that stage and I take the few days I need to recover when you do bomb, I still know I will still not be involved in that life situation. Because, I mean, if that was... I mean, the only thing they had missing was like a big jar with three X's on it and like a pig with some lipstick on it. it seriously, it's horrible. But other than that, most crowds are good. So, yeah. One of your great skills as a stand-up and a talent that you're renowned for in the circuit is being able to deal with challenging rooms. So what advice would you give to comedians about dealing with hecklers 
and uh, rowdy crowds? Um, I would say the advice is um, listen to the heckle first and take the time because there is a weird time distortion when you're on stage because a lot of the time, if you've got five minutes, there's there's that kind of consciousness where you want to get across your whole set, but then at the same time, you kind of want to make sure that you do it at a pace where you don't rush through it. And when you initially start in comedy, this is one of the reasons the course is helpful is that when you've got five minutes, you want to get through your set straight away, you want to give everything you can, but um, you should be aware that like, even if you don't get through your five minutes, then it's not you haven't lost anything because if you've done well, you're just gonna leave people wanting more. So even if you only get to like three minutes and you get like a light or you get halfway through a joke, don't just cut off the joke, finish it to set the way you'd, you'd wanna finish a conversation. So even if you like to get a train or you're coming off the phone with somebody, you wouldn't be like, oh, there's my train and then just walk away. You might, you'd, you'd wrap it up so that in the same way. And so it's supposed to be like a conversation. So what, um, what I would say, because a lot of time when people do get heckles, they start getting worried, like, oh my God, he's cutting into my time. This person, why is this person interrupting me? I'm trying to discover myself artistically. Who what are you doing? And they start panicking and stuff. You, and you, you like, and that's the initial reaction because it's like, you're trying to go, well, everyone's laughing and smiling. And someone will say something, you're like, oh my God, this is really, I didn't plan for this. What's going to happen? Oh, why is this person trying to ruin my life? And then they go back with that like, profanity and stuff. But sometimes, like with hecklers, sometimes they, um, they get kind of so inspirited by what you're saying. They get involved just like with a normal conversation if you're having a, if you're like holding court like i don't know like if you was in a, in a, in a calf or something like that you might say something that resonates with someone so well they'll just jump like i know exactly what you mean and it's exactly the same principle so you you kind of deal with it the same way so like i'd say listen to the heckle first because it might be a fact that you can listen to it and, and in fact i think the audience if you didn't hear it the odds are no one else did so it's like well what did you say and then they might be like and they, they won't respond because they just realize that i'm just drunk and the whole audience will realize as well. So the best thing to remember most of the time is that the audience are paying, if any of them are paying, or they want to be entertained by you, so they're going to be on your side. So I say listen to the heckle first. If it's worth responding to, then I guess you can deal with it, but it's just a fine line, and it's something that probably comes from experience, but the fine line is to, it's not worth responding to, always. it's just, it's just lowbrow, and don't entertain it. If, if it challenges your set, and you have to be aware, but I mean, the best way to prepare for heckle is, is to have better preparation in your writing. So with stand-up, if you're an observational comic or you're saying something, if you want to make an observation, essentially you're making a statement. So you have to anticipate, okay, this is how I feel, but this is potentially how other people may feel about what I've said. So you've got to anticipate that. So someone might respond like, oh, I don't agree with that. So I can't believe you said that, Dane. I love James Bond or something like that. So you have to anticipate that response. So that you have a response for it, because essentially, it's a like stand up a stand up routine. I mean, it's like a conversation, but really, it's like a monologue because you got to do with rhetorics and you're speaking rhetorics a lot of the time anyway. So, you sh and you're supposed to be entertained anyway. So don't rely too much on on the audience, even when they do heckle, because they might not say the same thing again, or they might be too drunk to even realize what's happening. If you get like a malicious heckle, or someone is trying to respond and, and trying to mess with your set, you always have to remember that hecklers usually are frustrated comedians. And you have to see them for that, even though it's intimidating when you're by yourself and they're with a group of friends and they and like you remember that, you know, in most cases, like that's somebody who wants to do what you want to do, but they're scared to. They're, it's very easy to criticize in the dark when you're surrounded by your friends and you've got drinks in you. It's very easy for someone to say something. So make sure, as long as you highlight that fact and maintain that calm, just don't let them see you getting very angry, even if you are angry. And just yeah, don't, don't really entertain it. So that's how I deal with it. And I learned that because I think I had one of the worst gigs I ever had was at Brunel University, and it was basically it was basically I was basically William Wallace. 
at the end of Braveheart. It was like, there was no way I was walking on there to die. Because it was like a show, it was like a, I'm doing inverted commas, you can't see this, but it was a talent showcase, which included like poets, rappers, dancers, a fashion show, and some comedy. Now, for anyone who wants to be a promoter, those shows, the sequence is very important there because I know if you go to a theme park, okay, and then you go and get like some donuts or some candy floss, you don't go onto a roller coaster straight away. You probably go onto like, I don't know, a, a log flume just to get the levels back before you get back into the roller coasting. And that's exactly the same. You can't put a comedian on after a grime artist because the mood and the tempo of the night is just, there's just too, too much of a, a change. So I think after the fashion show and the grime artist, they brought me on. And for some reason, the DJ didn't even play any music when I came on. So he was already not on my side. And also the, the inverted commas talent showcase was preceding an after party. So you had a lot of students that just showed up to kill time before the after party or, you know, just to survey what kind of talent other kind of talent was going to be at the, at the after party so they have no interest in this show and they know about st- and you, the show's already got a stigma about the standard of talent anyway so by the time they came and they, they just wanted to get to their show and they were just waiting like just waiting for something anything this guy says I don't want to know he's just wasting our time so the booze began before I even opened my mouth and yeah that was that that was probably the worst bomb I ever had that bomb was so bad that I was too embarrassed to ask the promoter for expenses. Yeah, I was. I, I just don't want to talk to anybody. It was terrible. I think since I've not had anything that bad, then I'd be like, ah, oh, could be much worse. I've seen some some horrible bombs in my life. So yeah, the best way to just deal with rowdy crowds is just to realize that it's probably not going to be your last last gig you ever do. And you know, some countries people people are executed for annoying crowds. So could be worse could be worse but yeah no but bombing is, bombing is a good thing because you can learn like if people always dread like how you're gonna bomb and like if people don't laugh at my jokes it's a failure and that's not always the case like if, especially if you've done the fringe you'll learn because it's like boot camp like you may have people that have gone to see six shows the whole time they're there and you know it's the same principle if someone buys like a comedy dvd they might not say they want to have like loud barely laughs at it but just having that on kind of relaxes them and they might actually smile and the more and the more comfort you get with the stage and having the more of that awareness of your surroundings so you, you can look out into a crowd and even though they're not laughing there's not that much like audible laughter and you can tell whether the people enjoy it and stuff so they might they might laugh and and, and yeah a lot of the time you you just did you're dealing with human beings and sometimes conversations with human beings under normal circumstances can be boring so like for example i've had shows where someone might they might not laugh or they might look baffled at first but then someone their friend might have to explain to them well he means this and then they go oh yeah oh. And you have to have that awareness of it because sometimes people perceive that as like someone insulting their set but it's not that it's just, some people are just really slow on, on the uptake so you can use that and yeah just um, I guess in the, the, the surefire way of dealing with difficult crowds is to do as much gigs as possible in different rooms and the more rooms you deal with in different people you'll get used to dealing with those people and just but yeah just take the time and um, always remember that it's your that, that five minutes is entirely yours and that's what some comedians forget is that they, they may come on stage and they might dance for a bit or they might like have a little bit of a conversation or like talk about oh, i've never i haven't done this for a long time and forget all of that like it's hard enough getting that five minutes is your time 
where people are, people are listening to a stranger and that doesn't happen very often so just take full advantage of that and you can learn a lot and just yeah and just take your time but um the best the surefire way to deal with difficult crowds is to, to do as much gigs as possible and gain more confidence with your set so don't try and don't try and do crazy stuff learn your set well um learn how to anticipate how people respond to your set but like i'd say you your first five minutes by the end of it you should be able to do, like you should be able to do your first five minutes like david blaine like upside down in a piranha tank with a safe around your head like chained up so that way whatever happens you can deal with it and get back to that set and just remember it inside out like the back of your hand and yeah and then so because once you have that second nature then so anything else you can just deal with easily but yeah just do as much as possible and you've been a finalist in lots of comedy competitions, including Up the Creek One to Watch, Amuse Moves Laugh Off, Leicester Square New Act of the Year, Laughing Horse New Act of the Year, Max Turner Prize. So how do you feel about comedy competitions? Um, I haven't won any of them. So I would say they're not that great. No, they're, they are, they're good to an extent. Um, like I've, I've not won any competitions. So, I mean, there would be resentment there. But then I guess... A lot of successful comics haven't won that many competitions. Um, I like them. What I like about competitions is that I've treat, always treated them as like gigs and showcases. And a lot of the time I, I've still done pretty well from them. So, I mean, they, they're very good for your CV. And sometimes they can be good to open doors for some promoters. Um, well, what I like most about competitions is that I've met other acts um, early on. It's been an excellent networking opportunity. Um, a good opportunity for uh, gigging as well because um, even depending on whether or not you win like if you do a good performance and you do treat it like a gig and perform in that in that fashion then a lot of the time if you're not like I said like, as a finalist then someone will see you and say I think you did well you should perform somewhere else um, so as far as that I, I, I like them I just think that the difficult thing is just um, that people when you get into a competitive mind frame then it doesn't allow you to enjoy comedy as much because like if you're on a if you're on a good if you're on a good bill with good acts it can be really fun because um it's literally it's literally just like kind of like passing the baton in like a really fun relay and and you can just enjoy a good crowd whereas with a competition is like there's sometimes there's a part of you that's like oh i want to do well but not too well that i can't do well so yeah it's best not to think about it like that um so yeah, the competitions—they've they, been okay. Um, in this, I guess my, mine's might be a unique case. I'm not sure, but most competitions, despite me not winning or being placed, have always led to, I guess, the same prize. Because I mean, with most competitions, the amateur competitions, like if you do well here, then you end up getting a professional night. But I mean, with Up the Creek, I ended up having a professional night anyway because like, I performed there a few times. So I ended up getting an open spot. Um, with the Moose Moose, I've had an open spot. Leicester Square, I've done, I've done a uh, compared and done hosting spots for them anyway. So. The long-term goal, I guess, if you're entering comedy competitions, is A, to be recognised for your talent and B, to get pushed towards being a professional. And I've had both of those through doing competitions, whether or not I've won. So I haven't got any complaints in that respect. So unless I walk into like a green room one day with all these winners, like polishing medals and going for pictures, then I, I, it's not really bothered me to this point. But until that happens, I, I'm pretty cool with them. So. And then... For the past few years, you've performed lots of guest spots at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, last year, part of the spots you were in the uh, you were in the Amuse Moose final, and you also performed uh, for the BBC. And this year, you're going to be performing a double hander with James Leverage at the Fringe. So, what's been your experiences of the Edinburgh Festival? I think mine's have been pretty tame, to be honest, because uh, a lot of the time I spent I spent like the, the earlier part of the afternoon. I get out pretty late, to be honest, but that's because I get to bed pretty late. But 
I spend like most of the afternoon, I'll do like a few guest spots and I usually just you catch up with other comics from the circuit and they usually offer me a spot. Um, and I'll, I'll do that and just, and it's been quite productive. Like, most of my days pretty productive because I get to um, kind of try through, get through some new material pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, just doing good favors. Like, I, I compared for uh, two years ago, I compared for like James Gill had a, a show that he um, he shared with um, two other acts and I decided, um, compared for that. And um, yeah, during the day is pretty good. I, I don't think I've gotten in that involved with the kind of wild side of the fringe. No, that's only because like I've wanted to make sure that I've, you know, stayed productive while I'm up there because I've only been there for a few days and I still have an impression to make because I never had a show before. So yeah, I'd, ra I'd rather have like a leg to stand on before I kind of got involved. Although like last year, um, tried to do a bit more networking, met a few new more and established comics, which was pretty good. And um, yeah, tried to get my face a bit more visible, um, like doing Spank, I met uh, Hannibal Buress as well. Um, so among well, quite a few people, well, I met loads of acts there as well. Um, Rubber Bandits were there as well. So yeah, it's kind of getting that visibility, uh, Johnny the Baptist. So it's kind of getting that visibility with a lot of these those different acts and stuff. And for me, it's kind of proven I'm more of a capable comic. Because up, up until that point, like I, I wasn't signed. And so a lot of the uh, any kind of promotion or press was down to myself. So I was making sure I made a good impression and was seen as a capable com act first before I kind of get involved in some of the madness. So like, I know there are perks to like being at the fringe. But for me, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm seen first as a good act before people find out that I am a high-functioning alcoholic, which I'm happy for them to find out at some point. But before me being a high-functioning alcoholic, I want them to know that I'm a I'm a good comedian first. So High-functioning stand-up. High, yeah, and higher-functioning stand-up. <laughs> so much that, yeah, that the high-functioning alcoholism isn't even an issue and people don't even worry about it. So, like, yeah, just, just like seen as, like, a man with his pipe or like you know an older man with just yeah there's a bit a bit a little bit of snuff that's all but he, he he gets it all the time does great work yeah so it's only seen as a small vice and you don't even notice so yeah that's 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 what i'm going for so um but um yeah no it's, it's been fine I, I i mean i'm used to seeing drunk acts anyway but yeah you, you do most of them are pretty friendly so i don't know i, I don't really get onto that side of of acts when it's like i didn't really expect them to behave that way so and I worked in sales for a long time. So seeing people narcotized or under the influence have a complete change in personality is something I'm used to anyway. So there's nothing these comedians can do that's not, that's gonna scare me. <laughs> seeing some crazy stuff anyway in like my old environment. So no, it's, it's still pretty fun because um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there is a stigma about how people behave in the fringe, it's still a very big creative playground. So even if you see something, usually I can get some material out of it, so it's always pretty good. But um, yeah, the Fringe is a great place. I I really love being in that environment. I feel um, even subconsciously, I come into my own where being surrounded by that many creative, comedic minds, I, I usually come back with a good 20 minutes extra material that if not used right away, might be kind of like, quite be temporal in nature. So if it's, if it's not useful now, by you know later on in the year, it will have like a perfect application as an opener for a set or a middle part or as a segue for a new set. So. Yeah, for me, even though I've not added my own show up until now, it's always been very useful, so it's cool. Well, speaking about your older environment, you used to have uh, a day job and then gig in the evening, and a lot of material in your set is about your, your old work. So did you find it difficult keeping up a day job whilst also trying to do stand-up at night? Yes, it was more difficult because I am very lazy in the office. Well... Lazy, to, no, I won't say I'm lazy, but I guess I believe more in working 
when I was working a nine to five, it's more about working smart than working hard. Because I mean, most of the time, like I've seen the way people crush themselves on trains and stuff, and it's like your only reward is going to be you get to work earlier, and you know it's not going to be the people going to. And I worked in sales as well, which is very repetitive in nature. So it's not like people sit around and go, "Do you remember that time when Sarah hit that target back in March, 2010? That was a great day. Autumn leaves had fallen. I remember it was a strange, strange zephyr it was through the air that day, and." It's not going to happen. You just hit your target, then you have a next target the next month. No one will care. And then they'll think, well, if they can do it this year, then they'll put the targets up by a few percent. And it's just very repetitive. So um, I think through that monotony is where a lot of my material came from. And I guess I had always been under the impression that you go to uni, get a job, you get a good job, and blah, blah. blah. And I, I just became disillusioned with that. So I think a lot of the time now, the, the more time that I spent out of the uh, rap race, the more time I've had to reflect on it. So that's where a lot of material is coming from. And, you know, I'm not that much of a revolutionary, but because I've done, I didn't, I didn't like my, I, when I studied at university, I didn't come from like a creative background and I didn't have a, did a, a creative degree. So I kind of have a lot more of affinity to your average kind of civilian that does a nine to five or your young professional. And it's good because I think they can relate as well. And yeah, I, I kind of understand that struggle as well, but um, at the same time, I think what I endeavor to do with my comedy and one of the visions I have is for those people that are going to be involved in that rap race is maybe providing the comic relief for them. So, because I think a lot of the time when people are involved in that, they know the absurdity of going to work every day and the conditions that you have to go to work in and then having like a an increase in the cost of travel anyway, which doesn't match your salary. Like I see the absurdity of that, but some people may not have, you know, the facilities or resources in order to break free from that. So I think providing that comic relief for them has been fun anyway. And, and a lot of stuff I've had is... is I like to think that it's kind of like canteen humor and it is the kind of jokes that people kind of like, you know, use to kind of make sense of their, their, of their situation or their professional situation. And the fact that most of us do have to trade our dreams for money. So yeah, cause it's, it's, it's I mean, it's said that, you know, that prostitution is the oldest profession in the world, but most of us are involved in some degree to prostitution when it comes to work, because you're given a part of yourself that you wouldn't really surrender voluntarily for money. So a lot of people are involved in that. So I, I, I endeavor to try and find the comic relief in that and find a lot of the uh, social constructs and professional kind of like institutions that exist is trying to find like, like find cracks in that, which I think is kind of a relief for a lot of people that are involved in it. So, and especially, I guess, for those people based in London, like that's where the majority of commerce takes place and a lot, of, but then at the same time, most people from the country even know somebody who's gone to London to seek work or have to commute into it to seek work. So even though it's kind of, some of it's London based, I mean, it's, there's quite a wide appeal and everyone understands that. And, you know, it's a capitalist world, live in the Western world. So everyone knows they have to work to live. So, and you know, if it, my parents have always, like they've never been without work. So yeah, most people can relate. And I guess, yeah, that's, and that's been part of it as well is that, um, cause I was brought up with the fact that, you know, parents, they've never, been on like any kind of income like an, any kind of income support or, or job seekers allowance so kind of brought up with that mentality and then breaking away from that and pursuing like a creative interest has been a crazy journey so like it's been a, lo a large part of my materials kind of reflecting on that and uh yeah i hope to kind of expand on that a lot more so it's, it's very fun and i think like especially now a lot, a lot of the material that i'm doing i'm trying to write now is kind of trying to relate to that so um, i don't know what that's gonna kind of 
precipitate as if it would be like a sketch or like a series but I mean I think this is the reason why like The Office itself has been successful as a series is because everyone can relate to that and a lot of the characters in there have just there's always that even though they're composites like everyone has like a David Brent in their office so or Gareth so yeah and did the people that you work with did they know that you were a stand-up yeah no some of them had an idea like I'd not done it for a while in, in my last job but um somebody asked me to do a set um for like a charity performance at, at work and um yeah there's a lot of pressure I think the fact that you're trying um people are going to be supportive because like you're giving it a go um so I think I had that on my side but um yeah I kind of had to rehash some old ideas and stuff but it went it went, it went pretty well but yeah people are quite supportive and um I didn't like I I, I think from experience what I've seen is that the way for a, a gig performing for people from work will go badly is if you kind of refer to people by name or feel you have to involve people so again there wasn't that pressure you just, just treat it like they're just people as opposed to people that you work with so because you're going to find stuff that people can relate to anyway so they've, they've been quite supportive and um you know still get like a few messages and people ask me about gigs and stuff so hopefully people can get down because I mean I've worked quite a few places and they've, most of them have been involved in media and so I'm sure there's going to be some cross player which I'm going to walk onto like stage at the NMA Awards and just see a sea of people that I used to work with. And they'll may laugh at me, but I will definitely be laughing at them if they're still in media after this point in time. But it's it's a it's a it's a it's a funny it's a funny uh, industry because it's very hard to get out of. But um, yeah, it's it's a very good training that industry as well for for doing what I'm doing because um, you just meet so many different people and um. You got a lot of the time you're doing pitching. You have to pitch to very different weird people. So there's always there's, there's been that kind of preparation there, and I think like on reflection, I kind of was always gravitating towards comedy as a career, but I had no idea how to pursue it because I'd never had been around anyone who'd been involved in it. So I think media sales, there's kind of like an element of creativity there and an element of blagging as well, and and thinking on your feet, which I kind of put into comedy as well and some of that some of that does go in, into 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 my sets though so when i if i do perform and it's quite high energy and stuff that would be like a pitch that i do to strangers but at the same same time if you're being quite deadpan and and but then also trying to be kind of relatable which is like another style i use depending on the room i think that would be like a lot of the time when you have conversations with maybe um people that you speak to more colleagues and or conversations you have with people in agencies so there's a way you may deal with your customer in terms of like a client trying to spend money but then there's a way, the way you might deal with like an intermediary who speaks between goes between yourself and the client where you can be a bit more honest and more deadpan so they can relate to it so i think that's all been applied into my style on stage so it's been useful and you've also been a major writer uh, to the new sketch show the johnny and Inel show so did you find it harder writing material for television as opposed to live stand-up I did find it difficult only because I've had no prior experience in writing for TV. So I wasn't like, you know, there's like acts and scenes and you kind of have to write in that. that and I had no idea how to do that. I, I made an attempt, but it was terrible. Like I I might put an act there and then I put like a sound. I just had no idea. But um, it started off quite difficult because I think I just had to change my mindset because um, it's, it's a Johnny Nine-Nine show is, is a kid's show. But at the same time, it's not a show that tries to patronise kids at all because um, it's trying to make sure that it stays rather aware of the fact that children are very tech savvy and they're aware of a lot more issues now and you know their 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 reach and their potential um, field of vision is more global now so it's kind of reflecting that in the show so it was but it was just making sure that we kept it you know without having any kind of profanity and stuff which wasn't too difficult so 
it was just a question. I think the biggest constraints I had for that show were um, just being aware of a budget and also just being aware that it's just not to patronize kids too much or to keep it too regionally specific. So, but other than that, it was it was it was fun. And um, once I got, I started off writing three sketches for the show, um, which went well, and then ended up writing another ten. But by I guess by the point about the fifth sketch, like I, I had an idea of what I wanted to set up, and I kind of stayed within the same kind of uh, sketch trend, which was it's kind of based on like you know, like an infomercial kind of vein. So it's like products that would would help you throughout life if, if you're a kid. And so that was pretty easy to do because I just regressed and just thought, oh, what would have made school easier for me? And you just think about the, the banes of like children's existence is kind of like you know, your parents, school, homework, and there's your other aspirations to be away from school. So it was kind of doing that and making sure I didn't, you know, give too much of an anti-academic message and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a way of keeping it clean. The challenge was not going for the obvious stuff, but at the same time being kind of creative in terms of the ideas that you come up with. So it was just like, yeah, just having a conversation with my inner child, which I had. Well, I had, last time I had, the first conversation was when I decided, like, you're really going to walk away from nine to five and go and do comedy. It's like, yes, we're going to do this, okay? No, we're not going to be able to be the Karate Kid or the leader of the Autobots. But we can do this comedy thing. So, here we are. And I'm still not a time-travelling jewel thief ninja. But, you know, once the comedy, who knows? That might go into something else. Uh, or I'll write a sketch about it. <laughs> who knows? But no, it was, it was it was a very fun experience. And um, I, I know Johnny and I know anyway. So, I kind of have an idea of, of their kind of mentality and based on their material and stuff as well. And I mean, I think they're ideal for the show themselves. Um, so I think the show will do very well. And I hope that I can contribute to that as well. And maybe in the future, collaborate with them a lot more in terms of the show. And then it means we can put together like a lot more, uh, a lot more interesting comedy and um, and comedy that's good by not just by kids standards, by by just by a universal standards. So yeah, I mean, the, the real the only real challenge for me is it's a challenge, but it's a welcome one that is going to be. You know, come refresh, having more refreshing ideas. So, if that does happen, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. So, and having performed all over the UK, do you have a favourite venue that you prefer performing in? My only preference is just a venue that's like a comedy venue. Um, I've performed in weird places where it's like it's just basically normally like a nightclub that's been converted, or where it's like a bar where there's still bar service. So, I'm not particularly concerned about venue. I I buy only kind of like stipulations are just somewhere where I have a microphone which the audience can hear and so that when I am on stage they are focused and they can hear me clearly because once I have that then it's just more down than just the remix of my own just to entertain them whereas if you're working somewhere where I've done gigs where it's kind of like it's essentially like a, a big corridor and you're at the top of the corridor down the bottom is like it's, it's kind of like it's like the bar's still open and it's like two for one on ladies night so then you've got like all Everyone who wants to be like Sarah Jessica Parker from Sex and the City, they're all in there ordering cocktails. Then there's a guy trying to impress a girl on that night, and then yeah, those those nights it's not really worth dealing with. And like yeah, if he was he likes to do some gig in, in Shoreditch, and like there's nothing that a hipster hates more than someone appearing more creative than he is. He's like, I've come all the way here in three quarter length trousers, and I'm wearing brogues, and there's a guy on stage trying to be more creative than I am. I don't know what's going on here. Well, I'm certainly not going to pay any attention. So, and that is a very strange heckle, but a heckle nonetheless. And if you listen to that, you can do it anyway. Like, so for example, that happened at like, I was at kind of like a hipster gig and the guy was talking to his girlfriend. 
and I was like, are you okay? Are you drunk? What are you drinking? And he was like, is that red wine? He was like, Merlot. And I was like, you realise Merlot is a type of red wine, don't you? And by then, yeah, so that, just that alone kind of brought everybody on side. So my only preference for a gig is just to have a, a, a microphone and, and a stage and just for people to hear and just to pay attention. Really, like a good compare usually helps as well. But um, I remember just I remember listening to Chris Rock um on a podcast said like you know the real responsibility is with yourself so you just got to work with the what you have and I guess before I made this into profession and and before I kind of tried to pursue this as an art form like I wouldn't have a problem trying to entertain people in a classroom or at the back of a bus or McDonald's or something like that or at a bus stop so yeah it's the same kind of principle so I mean you can work with what you've got so they're never always going to be perfect anyway so. But I'd say my my only stipulation that I have is just a, a stage and a microphone where people can hear me and I can work with that. And do you have a favourite type of audience? Um, just an attentive one, to be honest. Um, I don't really have a preference. I'm I'm pretty confident that most of most of the topics that I discuss and my delivery of 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 most of the jokes, most people can relate to if they are listening. Um. I don't really like to pander anyway, but um, I would say my mess getting a message across is most important. So I may adjust the pitch and like the, the the pace and when I'm saying something, and there may be some changes in slang, which that that can work in terms of not pandering, but it's for an audience because you are entertaining them. If you could, if you can do a particular accent in a particular region, then it kind of shows you're paying attention. Or like if I do a show in Birmingham, there's certain streets and certain areas which they they they, they may parallel certain place in London based on a particular joke I have so that can usually work and that can involve audiences in and it just shows that you're paying attention to the room and you've done the research and you're going somewhere because it, yeah because you, if you kind of just repeat your same set then it, it can become boring to yourself so kind of that slight adjustment showing that you are paying attention can show show a lot more to the audience that you're actually taking your craft seriously um, and it's, it's something that's very important for comics to kind of be aware of now, especially that you're living in the advent of like a YouTube generation where it's okay. If you if you hear about an act that's performing somewhere, you can instantly go to YouTube and see all their previous material. So, I mean, I mean, it's not always easy to write loads of new material, but if you go to a particular region, you should be aware. I'm aware that if I go into a stage now, these people, if they've seen me before or they know I'm going to be there, then they may have just taken all my stuff out on YouTube. So they might have newer stuff stuff that's tailored specifically to this particular area that particular show and it shows that you're 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 making an effort and you actually do care about the craft as well so i would say before i had a favorite audience but i i think the, the my favorite audience is basically someone that's listening because then it's more because then it's down more to me and it's something i'm because i can't really control that anyway so i don't really express like i hope it's this kind of audience that i hope it's that kind of audience because it's not something i'll ever be able to control because even a good audience on a bad day like if i was an audience like a good audience who has to who sees like a show start late or it has to sit in a cold room, or like you know a poorly maintained room. They're gonna even if they they came with good spirits, they're gonna be angry by the time you come on stage. Or if you turn up late, or you know or if they've been insulted by the other comic or the other acts brought them down, that would be a good audience. But like all their energy has been taken and their patience has been worn thin by someone else. So you can't really base on kind of audience. So it's more for if they can pay attention, then it's more within my hands to kind of convert them. And it's more of a challenge anyway. So and that's and that's more to pay off anyway. So. Yeah, it brings out a lot stronger writing and stronger delivery for you. So, like, so for example, at something for Sunday, um, obviously it's very very cold. So there wasn't that many people, 
Um, and also because they were cold, it was like getting them to thaw out and be warm and, and get involved early was quite difficult anyway. Um, and and because it was quite late, we went through the show. So I kind of had to work a little harder than usual to kind of get them to warm up. But again, once you do it in the end, it's like you're getting that round of applause and you finally broke somebody down. It's like, it is like a breakthrough as a psychiatrist, like, oh, we've gotten somewhere. So once, they, once they've accepted you and that guard has gone down, then you're away and it's nice. And it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's just... Like it's like boxing is like you have to go those first rounds just jabbing and jabbing and jabbing and once you get one hit in and then you can start doing windmills and everything like that and you can actually start performing for the crowd and then that's what it's like yeah i think well it's not exactly like boxing but i think that's the closest thing in terms of the fact that it's a solitary performance and it's and if you fail it's just very lonely you don't really say you don't really see anybody that when a boxer falls down no now hit me too that way we'll still be together like i've had like shows where friends have come with me and I've left alone but it's not gone well I was like Ugh. hey it's me Dane still remember you came to see me I know not this man yeah it's been it's been difficult so yeah it's um I think it's it's good to uh not really wish for a type of crowd just wish for just a situation where you're going to be able to get your point across don't don't think about how good the crowd is going to be because um yeah, there's no point because long term, if you're going to take, if you really want to go take it seriously, you step onto stage at the O2. Not everyone's going to preview a cup of tea, and it gets to the point where you know some people they they may not be that interested in comedy, but you may reach a certain level of prominence where they're like, okay, so who's this guy? I want to go check him out, and they may not agree with anything you say or be the kind of person you'd normally speak to, but they might really able to relate to what you have to say. So. And that's just something to do with as a comedian, because um, I've got I've had people be like, oh mate, you're really really good. Now, I don't find women funny. Oh man, and I just want to walk away. And I and I just want to walk away. But there's a point where I have to entertain it slightly, yeah, to, to an extent, because I mean that person's giving me the patience to listen to me. And you know, if I'm going to be the kind of person where I'm going to be saying what I think, then I have to entertain this ever so slightly and you know just you kind of sit on the fence and you and it's weird but even people like that you can get some material out of it and it's good because in, if i do have to speak with somebody who's very close-minded then i can process that and especially to a especially british comedy probably works so well because you know as we're so repressed that if you have somebody that does speak about something that you really want to get off your chest you, there's even more of a payoff so if i speak about somebody who is close-minded that said something and then just give an honest reaction most people can project onto that as like, oh, I know someone like that and I wish I could say that to them when they were there, when they were there. But so you, they can project onto it. So again, there's a lot more opportunity for you to, you know, work well for your audience in that respect. So, okay, going back to your original point. Any crowd that's listening is a good crowd. I suspect that after gone on so long with that question, anyone is still listening to this now, you're a good crowd, guys. Thank you. So... <laughs> and do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comics my advice is to uh, understand that you'll be doing this because you like it um, this is not like you know this is not like DJing or you know being an MC so any kind of visions you may have seen from mainstream media it's not like that at all okay um, understand that as a comedian initially to most of most people you're a clown at first when people hear you make jokes for a living, that's how people see you at first. Um, so I just want to get the bad stuff out of there first. But um, my tips would be just to gig as much as possible. Um, 
and to enjoy it don't press don't put any kind of pressure on yourself to achieve anything in terms of i have to be here like because i meet a lot of acts like okay well i've done 45 gigs but i've done this it's like there's no pressure there's like if you've done 45 gigs in rooms where you know people are so for example if you do like 45 gigs outside of london then you may deal with a completely different crowd to london where people are literally spoiled for comedy so they got like they could just close their eyes and stretch their hands out and there'll be a gig within the next kind of 10 feet of them so they're going to give you a completely different response to people that you have can perform for or you know some people but at the same time if you're going to take it as seriously as a professional i've seen some acts like like oh it's good i put my family down and it's great and they come to every gig which is nice but to be honest most of my family don't come and see me do comedy in the same way when i was working at auto trader my mum was never over my shoulder like that's a great way to send an email dane good work son because this is my job and they're not always going to be there and while it is good to have support in the initial stages um with comedy it's probably best to get the nature of the beast and just get an honest response from people that, that don't owe you anything and don't know who you are because a lot, a lot long term the way most people that understand your sense of humor are people that have been around you long enough but when you're meeting crowds they don't know who you are so even when you do say stuff that might be kind of taboo or be a racy subject then with your friends it's tongue in cheek and they appreciate that's a part of who you are these people don't know who you are so that would be my advice but i guess the biggest piece of advice i'd give you is just to enjoy what you're doing um be happy that you're on like use that five if it's a five minute set use that five minutes and love it man because it's very rare that people get a chance to be on a stage to say what they actually think five minutes and have an audience listen to them so definitely enjoy that um and try and be be yourself as well um because or well or do do what you feel most comfortable doing on stage because when you come off stage one of two things going to happen it's either someone's going to challenge what you say even if you don't necessarily believe it or they may expect you to be that kind of person all the time so yeah just do what you feel comfortable with and if you're a naturally funny person that's going to kind of permeate onto stage anyway so it's always going to work and i mean that's what i just try to do is i i'm i think i've got enough of a work and a human that working towards anything i say in the way i say it will be funny so that's how i work towards it but while your students i say yeah all those times you spend watching jeremy kyle don't like so for example like all the phenomenal, all the free time you have, if you do something like watch Jeremy Kyle, like, okay, so everyone watches Jeremy Kyle, okay, so I would say probably leave that alone in terms of, unless, because you don't, you don't want, really want, uh, um, when you're dealing with like the human experience, which is what you're doing when you're doing comedy, is that you're trying to, you're basically trying to perform some kind of analysis of humanity, and that's how people engage, and that's where the payoff comes off that people go, that's how I think that, yeah, I can't believe anyone else knows they think like that, that's where the payoff comes from if you're like an observational comic, so, when you look at something like Jeremy Kyle, it's like, you shouldn't be looking at like something like Jeremy Kyle. Like You need to be looking at kind of society as a whole and be like a critical thinker. If you, if you, um, like there's a tendency on stage now to people be like, ah, oh, I saw this in the paper and this is what this thinks. And like most people, to be honest, they don't read the paper. They may act like they do, but most people don't really read that many newspapers or if they read the paper, when you read a paper as a comic, you know that the editorial have already given their opinion on a, on a phenomenon. So as a comic, I feel that your job is to give tell people what you think. It doesn't matter what the papers say or what you're supposed to say. You should say what you think. And again, that's what I mean. It's using that microphone that, again, this is five minutes where, you know, you get to say what you think. And if you do continue to do comedy or you don't, 
once you leave your place of education and you get involved in industry, there's not going to be that many opportunities or you get to say what you think for five minutes. So definitely use that and, and just enjoy it because um, it's not going to be for the money. Take that much. Or the ladies or the men or both. It's just going to be, yeah, an opportunity for you to really just give the catharsis of what's inside of you, like any kind of art form. And yeah, treat it as such. And you studied business management at Bradford University. Do you have any tips or advice for students? Um, the stuff you really like, keep in your room. Condiments. Like, if you have got a budget, which most students have, um, condiments like soy sauce, salad cream, tomato ketchup, maybe hot sauce. Those four things. And if you've got any more money, mayonnaise. I'm a mayonnaise fan, but whatever. And maybe like some all-purpose seasoning. Only because if you're low on money and you can only afford like maybe some ramen noodles, ramen noodles with some soy sauce. Now, that's almost chow mein. So it just doesn't seem as poor and it can just spice up your food. So always have condiments around. Even if you can't afford lots of good foodstuffs or you can't afford to buy meat. Look, what I'm saying is tuna and pasta oh, that sounds so broke but tuna and pasta with like some salad cream that's almost a niçoise salad so you're almost there and it's like oh that looks delicious i know but i just ate all the lettuce straight away nobody asks any questions like pasta with ketchup that's almost an adobata that's how you're almost it's like a vegetarian adobata you put a little sauce in there it's fine so always have some condiments handy that's my advice and uh what else student advice I mean you're pretty okay now most stuff you can stream if you ever get it's okay so if you ever get in a situation where you've got like a really amazing connection go crazy and just download as much stuff as you can because you never know when you're going to be on that mega bus without wi-fi okay and i'm going to be honest with you some of you students okay some of you aren't going to be able to afford to take a gap year to find yourself when you graduate okay but if you want to get the experience of traveling the world in impoverished conditions, then you take a mega bus. It's pretty much the same thing as riding like a bus in Calcutta. It's almost exactly the same. So try and, and, and do that and learn about yourself if you're that determined. But yeah, that's my, my advice to you. And also lock your door if you get some alone time, lock your door. Because you can always tell what a male student is up to Based on when he answers his door, I came back from lessons early once. I didn't have to go to my tutorial. And normally I walk in and my friend is like, hey, what's happening, Dane? Oh, let's just chill out. Why don't we play some FIFA? But he forgot to lock his door once and he didn't realise we'd be back so early. I was like back an hour early. And he treated me like I was a junkie climbing through his window. He was like, what the, What are you doing here, Dane? I'm entitled to some privacy. What's wrong with you? Why are you coming in my room? I was like, hey, I was, no, you can't come in. I looked over to his DVD player, what was on the screen, and I understood instantly. So the lesson here is always keep your door locked if you're a male student, because who knows who's gonna walk in? And you don't want that reputation in your first year.